My name is Mark, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word to you today. It's good to see you all, and welcome. You know, we're coming up on Lent, and at the end of Lent comes Monday Thursday. That's when we commemorate the Lord giving the commandment to love one another. It's called Monday since the word for command in Latin is mandatum. It's a mandate. Jesus commanded this, a new mandate I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now this mandate, it's embedded in Grace Chapel's discipleship pathway. If you look at your bulletin, uh, there's a watermark on the back and it depicts the pathway as fruit on a tree. And Ben, he's walked us through four of these things, and today we'll consider what it means to love one another. Next week is Jesus' command to love your neighbor. Today we're going to consider two primary scriptures, though, and we're going to pull in some other texts as well. Our first scripture, if you have your Bibles, is John 13, verses 34 and 35, and the second one will be from John 17, verses 20 and 26, and the uh, text will be on on the screen here. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And now John 17, this is Jesus' prayer. He says, I ask that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would quicken our hearts today that we might love one another in such a way that the world may know that we are your disciples. Amen. So this morning we're going to consider three questions. First question is, How is Jesus' command to love one another different from his command to love your neighbor? Second question, what is the command to love one another for? And the third question is, what does love one another look like? Question one, how do the two commands differ? It seems that the commands generally aim at different groups. Love one another people seem different from love your neighbor people. We can see that from our text today in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Verse 35 tells us that when Jesus' disciples love one another, all the other people will know that we are his disciples. So there are two groups here. Those loving one another and all the other people watching, the neighbors. Well, that's curious. How did these different groups come to be? Why isn't everybody in the one another group? Well, the context for understanding love one another, as with lots of things, is Genesis 1 through 11. The Bible begins with Adam and Eve in a garden. Eden's the place where heaven and earth overlap. They enjoy a relationship with God and one another that is the ultimate love one another relationship. And from Eden, God intends to rule the earth with and through the humans. He intends to govern the world with a unified earthly family. But what goes wrong? Well, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel, and death is introduced into the world. And then there's a a strange episode with the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6. That leads to the flood. And then there's the event at Babel. At Babel, a unified people intend to build a tower where heaven and earth overlap. It's a man-made Eden, a place for the gods to come down and a place where they intend to establish a new world order. Babel was the first attempt to Nazify the world. And what does the Lord do about it? He comes down, disperses the people, he divides their language, and their imperial ambitions fall apart. But what happens in the next chapter, the very next thing, the Lord calls Abraham and he creates a people uniquely for himself, a people through whom he intends to restore the unity of Eden and he intends to bring a love, one another blessing on the rest of mankind. Here's what that promise looks like in Genesis 12, right after the Babel event. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here it is, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's here we begin to transition toward our second question. What is the mandate to love one another for? Well, it's for reunification, and it's fixing Babel. With Abraham, God begins his reunification project. Israel is supposed to be a distinct people, distinct from the rest of the nations. They're to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests. And their love and their unity were to be so perfect, so public, and so profound that the nations couldn't resist becoming a part of it. That's the story of the Old Testament. God working to restore the unity of Eden through the children of Abraham. King Solomon, he gets it. He summarizes God's plan in a prayer at the dedication of the temple, which is a place where heaven and earth overlap. Here's his prayer. Lord, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, 
For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know this house that I have built is called by your name. There's the plan. But within a few generations, it all falls apart. God's people and the nations never come together. But the Lord doesn't give up on his reunification plan. Instead, he elects to do the work himself. And where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He succeeded because he was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He became the one through whom all the families of the earth received the love one another blessing. The Apostle Paul, he calls that a mystery. Here's what he says. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So at Pentecost, the church was tasked with reaching the nations by displaying our unity through our love for one another. And that unity is designed to communicate that God so loves the world. And our unity is to be so perfect, so public, and so profound that the world can't resist becoming a part of it. So, how are we doing with our unity? Are we doing better than Israel? Does the world see a church that so loves one another that they can't wait to join us? Well, sometimes. But unity can be hard. Why is unity a challenge? Well, in my own experience, unity is difficult because at its core, at its core it requires submission. And submission requires humility. And we don't always do humility very well because we're proud. We love ourselves. And on top of that, we rarely see humility faithfully modeled. But as believers, we have the model of Jesus' relationship with his Father. And what is it that characterizes that relationship? Submission. Complete submission. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In Hebrews 5, the writer says, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions. He was heard because of his reverent submission. And in Luke chapter 22, when he's in Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So the unity of the Father and the Son, it manifests in the Son's submission to the Father. And so our unity must be demonstrated by our love for one another 
And our unity will communicate that God so loves the world. Now, only the church can show what it means to love one another. No other entity on earth can do that. Because only the church is empowered by the Spirit of Christ. And only we, the church, are supernaturally embedded within the life of the Trinity. Only the church shares in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Remember our opening scripture from John 17. O righteous Father, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What is this love between the Father and the Son? What is this love that will be in us? Well, I think St. Augustine is helpful here. Here's what he says. He says, between the Father and the Son exists a single bond of mutual love. This one love is total, full, absolute, complete, and personal. It is itself a person, the person of the Spirit. The mutual love between the Father and the Son is the Spirit, and through the Spirit, we fully participate in the life of the Trinity. Jesus said this in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. The only way that our love one another will be compelling to the world if it's empowered by the Spirit of Christ and modeled on the submission of Christ. We've been given supernatural power to love one another because the Lord of the universe abides in us. The Apostle John puts it this way. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God abides in us as we love one another. As Christians, we participate in the life of the Trinity, and we most fully experience this participation when we love one another. Acts of love done for one another put us at the center of of the Trinity. Now, these everyday acts have the power to unite the world around the saving message of the gospel. But that message will only become credible to the world when the church displays its unity through love for one another. So, question three What does love one another look like? In practical ways, what do acts of love look like? Well, they look like the same acts of love that the Lord gave to Israel. 
In Leviticus 19, we find the mandates of love designed to set Israel apart from the other nations. And it's helpful to look at some of these and see how they apply to the church, our church. Here's the first command from Leviticus 19. It's it's verse 9. Let me just read that. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. There are two opposing ideas at work here. Greed and generosity. Greed, as in maximizing profit above all else, doesn't fit. Personal prosperity shouldn't be the driving force of our life. And consumption won't lead to contentment. Generosity and compassion produce contentment. The Apostle Paul, he puts it, puts it this way. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, what if the world knew that no one in the household of faith had any lack? If everyone in the household of faith was materially cared for? Wouldn't that kind of love show the world that we are Christ's disciples? Here's another mandate given to Israel. Leviticus 19, verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Lord. Integrity is what's in play here. Stealing, whether outright or through trickery, is corrosive. Lying undermines the trust we need to serve one another. And on the flip side, it's hard to be generous when the person in need has a reputation for lying. Are they really in need? Or are they just using God talk to gain advantage? What if no one in the household of faith ever lied, stole, or used religious speech to get their way? Wouldn't that show the world that we are Christ's disciples? Another mandate. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. How do we treat the most vulnerable among us? Is the person with no social standing ever exploited by someone in the church? Ever ignored? Are people with disabilities ever marginalized? Do we aggressively provide accommodations? What if the church actively disciplined those who take advantage of the vulnerable? What if church spaces and practices were such that everyone had the access they needed? Wouldn't that kind of love show the world that we are Christ's disciples? Another command. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. 
or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Don't slander. Don't say untrue things about other people. You know whose name means slanderer? The devil. Satan. Slanderer has no place in the household of faith. And partiality, that's not a word, that's not a word we use much, but it's showing favoritism. It means to form a judgment based on what's on the outside. Are they rich, poor, good-looking, plain, well-spoken, uneducated? Are they from our political tribe or the other side? We're not to form judgments based on external things. That's not how the Lord looks at us. And it's not how we should form opinions about others. The New Testament letter of James has this to say about partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You have dishonored the poor man. So what if the church were impartial? What if during greeting time, We sought out the person least like us. What if between services we intentionally sought out people who don't look, speak, or dress like us? Wouldn't that kind of love show the world that we are Christ's disciples? Last one. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Have you ever lain lain awake at night thinking how to get even? They did the thing to me. I'm going to do the thing to them. Otherwise, they won't know that they hurt me. Loving one another says no. Revenge breeds revenge, and it inevitably spirals into a divisive war. What if instead of getting even, we just absorbed the affront? We turned that hurt over to Jesus. We turn the cheek. Wouldn't that kind of love show the world that we are Christ's disciples? I'll close with this. In Ephesians 4, Paul summarizes all of those mandates in Leviticus 19. Here's what he says. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. In that context, the neighbor is the church. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. 
Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Division is the goal of the enemy, which means loving one another is spiritual warfare. Loving one another is how we roll back the divisive forces of principalities and powers. That means when we limit our consumption so that we can be generous to our brothers and sisters in need, we're engaging in spiritual warfare. Living honesty, living with honesty and integrity, even when it's hard, is spiritual warfare. Identifying and aggressively supporting the vulnerable and marginalized among us is spiritual warfare. Avoiding favoritism and intentionally engaging with those who aren't like us is spiritual warfare. Turning the other cheek is spiritual warfare. So finally, as Lent approaches, let's resolve to love one another. It's what makes our claim credible. It's, in loving one another, it creates the context the world needs to believe the gospel. Loving one another doesn't require complicated programs, but unity can be hard. But we have the spirit of Christ within us, and that is power enough to love one another and to do what Paul says, to maintain unity in the spirit of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's resolve to love one another this Lent and see what the Spirit does in our body. Amen.